Hey everyone, and welcome to episode one of the Canucks Speakeasy podcast. I'm Pete. And I'm Doug. And we're going to get things going here. First of all, we need a beer. This is uh, something we always have to do, man. We've got to crack a beer before the show. Cheers, man. Cheers. Doug, what are we drinking today? Uh, our good friends over at Parkside Brewery uh, donated uh, some of their dusk ale for us, which is great. So cheers to the guys over at Parkside. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, best beer is free and cold. So before we start, we just wanted to let everyone out there know who we are, why we're doing this, what this is all about. Uh, basically, we're two guys who work together, who spend more time talking Canucks at work than actually doing any work. <laughs> so we figured, hey, why don't we, instead of driving everyone around us in the office crazy, let's drive the internet crazy with our opinions and fandom. So Doug, how did it all start for you? How did you become a Canucks fan? Uh, it's actually kind of a funny story. Um, I would say I became a Canucks fan kind of because of Perry Mason. <laughs> what? True story. <laughs> so uh, my grandfather, so my mom's father, uh, Vic, Victor was his name. Um, I was the apple of his eye. Uh, I'm the only grandchild. He was stuck with three rotten daughters. So I was a boy plus the only grandchild. And I remember being in the living room with him. And again, I got whatever I wanted. I will admit, I was a spoiled little kid, um, especially being an only child. And uh, I went into the living room, and he was watching Perry Mason. And I kind of, you know, I was like, I don't want to watch this. It was an old, obviously, for the younger audience out there, Perry Mason was a very famous kind of court drama TV show, black and white, with uh, the star Raymond Burr. And um, I asked him, yeah, like, I didn't want to watch this. Please change the channel. And he changed it to the Canucks. And that was kind of the first real memory I have of actually watching a Canucks game. And then ever since then, I was just kind of hooked. Uh, I remember my dream as a kid was to play goalie for the Vancouver Canucks. I was always a goalie guy um, when I was younger. Uh, I would trade hockey cards with my friends, and I would always want the goalie cards. I will tell you that, yes, growing up, the best hockey cards were how cool the goalies looked. You got a goalie card with like just a face. Like, I remember this Bob Froze card from, like, 1987 that was just his face. I'm like, what the heck is this? And the year before, the Flyers had that Pelly Lindbergh card, that epic one with the, with him wearing the, the mask. And I was like, oh, this is the coolest card I've ever seen. That was, that was his rookie card, right? Yeah, that, that was, no, that wasn't his rookie card. That was his his, uh, his death card, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, his rookie card was also a sweet card. But, yeah, those ones are way better. There was, like, that was more important than getting the Gretzky is getting the cool goalie ones. Absolutely. I even remember they used to actually just have... It was just the goalie's helmet. So I remember we would have Cujo's helmet, and it was like all black, and it would just be Cujo's helmet, or Waugh's helmet, Belfour's helmet. Um, and yeah, so those were, you know, definitely I became more and more of a hockey fan. And I also remember my great-grandfather in his, uh, in his living room, you know, I would sit there with my little crappy plastic baseball glove and a little hockey stick. And, you know, my great-grandfather was probably in his late 70s, and he would sit in his living room, and we'd close the drapes, and he'd shoot a tennis ball at me, and I'd be trying to make saves in between the two two shoes I had. Cardboard you know, pads? Exactly. Not even, man. Literally no pads. Oh, old school. No pads at all, man. Jerry Cheever's out there. Absolutely. Um, and when uh, when was this, and where was this? Uh, so this was in Vancouver. Um, this would have been, I would say, first watching the Canucks with my grandfather, Vic, was probably 86, I want to say, 86 or 87, um, and then, yeah, early 90s with my, like, probably like 89, 90 with my great-grandfather playing goalie, and he's, like, shooting tennis balls at me uh, in his living room. This was in Kitsilano, actually, uh, just off of Arbutus in 16th, uh, and then obviously, yeah, ever since then, I just remember growing up with the Canucks, the run, the Canuck run in 92-93, uh, uh, it was in 93-94, uh, anyways, you know, the Burray, Linden, uh, McLean era, and Greg Adams, Jeff Cortnall. Uh, yeah, that that literally solidified my fandom of, like, you know, I became an obsessive hockey fan, an obsessive Canuck fan. Um, those, and are the, those are the first two years where we were really good. Absolutely. I mean, the 80, what was it, 82, 83 run? It was a little, 82. It was it 82, yeah, that, that was before my time. Um, so, you know, I'm... Uh, I was born in 83. Um, so yeah, when the Canucks, I remember the Canucks actually that time they uh, when they lost, uh, I wasn't living in Vancouver. I, I had moved up north to a place called Terrace. And uh, yeah, it was really, 
It was really emotional. Uh, I also remember, sorry, I'm getting a little off track here. My great-grandfather actually bought me, for all you old school Canuck fans out there, there was the book of coins that you got from that, from that era of uh, that team. It was the 93-94 Canuck team. And you had a coin of every, it was like a silver coin of every player. And then you got one gold coin. I remember the gold coin I ended up with was Pat Quinn. Uh, I still have the Pat Quinn gold coin, but I unfortunately don't have any of the other ones. Obviously, everyone at that time wanted the Burray gold coin. Um, I also think I ended up with a Dana Merzen gold coin. Uh, good old Dana number five. Uh, and then, yeah, I've just been a Canuck fan ever since. Uh, obviously, you and I have got a little history with the Canucks mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, how did it all get started for you, Pete? Ah, uh, man, the year was 1984. Uh, I grew up in Victoria, born and raised. Uh, moved over to England for a bit uh, with the family uh, when I was a kid. Moved back, went to uh, grade one over here, and we all started trading hockey cards. And there was a store in Victoria on the way home from school that I always make my mom stop at and get these 35 cent packs of cards with the gum in it. Nice. And I was like, like we said before, it was, it was the goalie cards. I love the goalie cards. Uh, they had the stickers in there too. But that was what turned me on to hockey first. We'd do things, you know, like flicking the cards. And as somebody who still collects hockey cards, it pains me to think that we used to <laughs> flick these cards and do the scrambles off the top of the slide and stuff. But that's what turned me on to hockey. And at that time, the Oilers were running the show, right? The Oilers had just been in the finals. They lost to the Islanders. And then the Oilers started that streak of four out of five, five out of seven. And Gretzky was the biggest thing on the planet. Uh, and the Canucks, of course, were in the same division as that. And the Canucks were getting smoked by Edmonton and by Calgary. And it was Vancouver, L.A., and Winnipeg kind of hanging out at the bottom of the Smythe division there. So it was a pretty pretty tough time at the beginning. First, geez, what would that have been? About six years or so of just kind of struggling. I got to say, actually, as well, my favorite player for a while was Grant Fear going into the goalie things. He has the Victoria Cougars connection. Yeah. Uh, his first mask with the Oilers was just sweet, and that was that was just a really cool mask. Uh, and but for the Canucks, you know, I had Tony Tanti, I had Patrick Sundstrom uh, for a little bit, Petri Skrico, you know, like guys are like, all right, what's going to happen? And then there was that game when this Russian kid came into Vancouver against the Jets, and when Beret played that game, that kind of changed everything for me. I was like, holy crap, you know, I've never seen a superstar like this on the team. And it just kind of went from there, you know. A um, bunch of my buddies uh, all cheer for different teams over in Victoria. We'd been doing hockey pools for years. And it just took off. And uh, I've been obsessed with the Canucks ever since, you know. Uh, and, yeah, here we are. Nice. Getting to tell everyone about why we love the Canucks. So, anyways, let's wrap it up. Let's get on with the podcast. Let's go. And for our first topic of our first uh, podcast ever, we've got a pretty hot-button topic, and that would be uh, the Benning extension. I know uh, a lot of the fans on Twitter and, you know, just around the water cooler. The Twitter meltdown. <laughs> uh, they definitely have a lot of uh, feelings about this. Uh, what are your uh, initial thoughts, Pete? Uh, the, the first thing I thought is a uh, Friday afternoon uh, in August. That's, uh, that's some sneaky timing there by the Canucks to try and tuck it under the radar and we still don't have the details on what exactly it is. I mean, I've heard a multi-year deal. Dolly, what... Yeah, Dolly Wall reported that he thinks it's... He's hearing that it's three years. I know Friedman said that he thinks it's definitely a multi-year deal as well. But yeah, none of the details have ever actually officially come out. But yeah, what are your thoughts? Like, you know, do you like it? Do you think it's fair? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I'm not a hate-bending guy. Uh, I'm not one of those ones who thinks he's done everything wrong. I mean, you look at, obviously, the guys he's drafted. He has made some terrible moves. We know that. There's been some terrible moves on his resume, but every GM has that. I, I thought that Benning would be fighting for his job this year, though. That's kind of what I thought. And I'm thinking that the timing of this has to do with something with the team not wanting this hanging over their 50th anniversary season. That's a good point. Uh, I didn't actually think about that, but I, I agree. I think, you know, having a lame duck GM going into the playoff or going into the season whose main goal and focus is going to be to make the playoffs, you also don't want a GM to have to kind of sacrifice the future at the trade deadline if you're kind of, you know, on the bubble of making the playoffs and yeah. start giving away futures or giving away picks or young players like a Tyler Madden, for example, to bring a veteran in who could maybe give you that last final push. This gives him a little bit more job security. Um, so I'm a little bit, you know, I feel a little more confident 
going into the season that, you know, it's not all or nothing. Yeah, for Benning, at least. Yeah, I agree. I think there's not that fear of, oh, shit, here we are at the trade deadline, trading out more first-rounders. I think it kind of gives us more of a trust-the-process kind of approach to it. Uh, again, though, it's 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 going to divide this team and this fan base no matter what, you know? Look, I, I get it. Benning's made some some mistakes... He doesn't come across well in the media as far as, like, his professionalism. I know he's been, you know, done in for, for tampering, for making comments about P.K. Subban. I think he also made a comment about Stamkos that I believe he got done for tampering. I yeah, could be wrong I, on that. I vaguely remember that. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure there was something that came up with that. I get it. The other thing that I think a lot of people forget is that, you know, he was a rookie GM. Lyndon was a rookie president. And... You know, this was hired by ownership, obviously. And so, you know, as rookies, they are going to make mistakes. You look at Paul Fenton, you know, Fenton got ousted. Was it one year in Minnesota and he's already out the door? Yeah, something like that. What What do you think was his biggest mistake? Uh, Benning's, not Fenton's. Um, I I think, obviously, the Goodbranson trade comes to mind as the first big... The first Goodbranson trade. Yes, the first one. I actually like the second Goodbranson trade. I think that's one of his better moves. Yeah, I agree. Um, but I definitely think Goodbranson, we gave up a lot in that deal, um, in my opinion, to get uh, to get good Branson. We give up some picks. Um, I'll pull it up right here. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think that's probably his worst move. Yeah, we gave up a second round, a fourth round pick. Obviously, Jared McCann for good Branson and a fifth. The fifth and the fourth, in my opinion, are a wash. Second round pick and Jared McCann for Eric Branson. It's pretty rich. Mm-hmm. Um, even back then, I know a lot of people had some doubt about good Branson and, you know, his actual, uh, you know ability to play top four minutes on a, on a competitive team. Uh, that one I don't like. I think ownership definitely had it. And again, I'm just speculating. But I, I think ownership did have a part to play in the Vertanen pick at the draft. And to me, that, you know, when you have guys like Ehlers or Nylander on, on the board there, obviously, you know, that's one um, a lot of people have, you know, are a little critical on. And that's fair enough. I definitely think so. But, you know, if I look over some of Benning's trades that I would deem losses, the only other trade that really sticks out to me would be the Brandon Sutter deal. You know, we give up uh, Nick Benito, Adam Clendenning, and a second-round pick for Brandon Sutter and a conditional third-round pick. To me, Benito for Sutter, one-for-one, one, would have been more than fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sutter just, just hasn't worked out uh, as well as anyone would like. But there's a lot of, like, you know, subtle moves in there as well that really can't really classify as bad trades. There's a lot that are kind of awash on his resume. They, even some of these minor moves, you know, when he Leipzig for Philip Holm, you know, a little deal, but, you know, it's kind of worked out. The Josh Levo deal for with Toronto has definitely worked out. Um, even when we picked up Derek Pouliot, who, you know, I slow, as you know, I, I slowly became not a fan of that guy the longer he's with the Canucks. But, you know, it's Audrey Padan and a fourth for, for him. I was like, well, whatever. It's worth the shot. The guy played with Green in Portland and was fantastic there in junior. When we traded Hunter Shinkarik, that was another one where I think everyone in the Canucks universe was like, oh, geez, what's what's going on here? Myself included. Like, I at first I was like, what are we doing? Why are we trading Shinkarik? He was, at that time, one of the more highly touted prospects we had in our system. Um, and, yeah, I was really shocked that we uh, traded him for Grandland. And obviously, you know, we got the sea of Grandlands for what was it, three years. That being said, Grandland was a serviceable regular NHL player who, like a lot of players in the history of this organization, was able to score 20 goals playing with the Sedins. Um, and I definitely think we've won that trade. I know we've obviously already moved on from Jonathan Dolan, but to be able to trade Alex Burroughs for Jonathan Dolan, that's a, that was a great trade. And we'll see what Carlson does. I mean, uh, the whole Dolan thing is interesting. I think he's back in Europe now, so uh, we don't have to really worry about him playing in the NHL anytime soon. Another one that's just uh, kind of a two more that one I like, one I didn't like, uh, the Sven Barchi trade with Calgary for second rounder. I'd say that's worked out. Absolutely. Uh, right around the same time, though, a few weeks before that, is a trade I really didn't like, and that was when we acquired Adam Clendenning for Gustav Forsling. I definitely put that down as a loss. Yeah, that one was one of the ones we lost. But, you know, looking back, there's not a lot that are complete losses on the trade front. Where Benning has really kind of shot himself in the foot with the fan base here is the free agency. And I think that's where a lot of people don't like the term and, and the deals that he's 
be given out to some of these guys? And who would you say, out of all the ones he's done, who is the one that you just wish he hadn't done? Is it Lou? I mean, obviously Erickson's the first one that everyone's going to say. That's the easiest one to kind of jump on and be like, you know what, we, what, the term, the money, you know, it's just way outrageous. But, you know, Louis was coming off a 30-goal year with the Bruins. There was this thought that, you know, the Canucks could still be pushing for, you know, a playoff, you know, spot, and you put Erickson with the Sedins, and they had some chemistry playing in the Olympics in years prior. Um, but to me, honestly, one of the ones I really don't like is probably Jay Beagle. And my oh, really? Well, it's not for me. It's it's the term. It's all about the term. I think four years for Beagle is just too much. Obviously, six, six years for Louis was too much. But at that time, you look at some of the other players that were signed that exact same day in 2016. You had Lucic, who was signed to a seven-year deal, I believe, for yeah. similar money. You had um, uh, the Islanders. Um, What's his name? He used to be the captain of uh, Winnipeg. Oh, Andrew Ladd. Ladd. Ladd signed, for, I believe, for a six year, six or seven year deal at the same money as well. So that did seem to be kind of the market. I think Seabrook, I know he's a defenseman. Yes. That was right around that time, too. Yeah, that was a re-signing, though, not necessarily yeah. a free agent signing. But that's what the market market dictated. And again, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, and there were a lot of people who justifiably said that this is a bad signing, especially for the term. Again, that's been the big, the biggest issue for me and they, where they've stubbed their toe the most is on term with these contracts. I mean, I would be okay with the Beagle deal if it was a two- or three-year deal. Uh, Roussel was a great signing. Yeah, I'm, I love I love Roussel. It's too bad we're not going to get to see him until midseason, but it'll also give someone else a chance to get into that fourth-line role, and Roussel will be a nice bonus when he comes back to the team. Another one that's you know just hasn't worked out, the Tim Schaller deal. Yeah, I mean, it's a two-year deal, so, you know, he's Whatever. done at the he's, end of the year. Yeah, and, and that's a contract you can put in the minors, and it, it doesn't really matter. But, again, let's go through some of the wins, in my opinion. Sure. 2014, I, Ryan Miller. At the yeah. time, I didn't love that signing. I'll be yeah. the first guy to admit it. Turned out to be a great signing. Yeah, I did. He uh, he was the only reason we uh, were even competitive some nights, though, those years. Yeah. Yeah, I liked the Ryan, I liked the Ryan Miller one. Eventually, you know, it, it, it took a little while. Would it be nice if we could have flipped him, but whatever. Yep. Uh, Rodin Verbata, a lot of people thought that that first year, at least, that was probably the best free agent signing of the 2014 uh, summer. The killer Vs for that, that he signed, Verbata and Vanek. Yeah, Vanek was another great signing. Uh, the other guy that a lot of people, you know, kind of forget, and I know everyone might say, oh, well, he's a local kid, but Troy Stetcher is a college free agent. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a big win to me. Zach McEwen. I know he played a handful of games last year. He looked great in Utica last year as well. That's another win for me. Uh, yeah, Benning has really gone uh, a lot with the uh, the NCAA route. And you look at some of the blue liners that we have in the system right now. You know, Tevez and Rafferty are a couple more that come to mind. But that's kind of a, some shrewd moves. I, I mean, the jury's still kind of out and what they are capable of. But I think at least putting those guys down in Utica to start the year, that's going to really help the team. I agree, and it gives some more depth in Utica, and obviously when you've got guys like Tanev and Edler who do get injured, mm-hmm. you know, very, Not an if, but a when. Exactly, right? exactly. You know, to have that kind of depth, and, you know, both Tevez and Rafferty got a little taste of the NHL yep. last year. We'll talk about Yulevi a little bit later, um, but Yulevi's obviously another guy who could make the jump. Breezebois, I think, played a handful of games. Mm-hmm. And Breezebois is still uh, on an entry-level deal. As well, Tevez and Rafferty, another thing, they're they're both uh, waiver exempt as well. Yeah. So that's kind of some other kind of shrewd moves. Those guys can kind of go up and down, and having those waiver exempt players, because there are a couple of guys on the team uh, on the blue line who aren't waiver exempt. But I think he's, you know, it's it is the term, and and you know that Brandon Sutter trade. Geez, that's that's one that just is really handcuffing us right now. Yeah. I would love to see some sort of creative solution to get Brandon Sutter out of there. Whether it's you know retaining half his salary or, or something, but just get him out of there so we can get Godet into that role and, and not worry about it anymore. But I just don't think Sutter is a fit on this team anymore. No, I agree. I think he what they he was a guy that you would want for a playoff team. He's a guy that could give you great third line, maybe even fourth line minutes. You know, he plays hard minutes in the playoffs. He can be that shutdown guy. I mean, I know we don't want to admit it, but clutching and grabbing does kind of you know referees do put away their whistles come playoff time and you mm-hmm. see that hard nose hockey look at the blues this year you know they played hard nose tough you know big physical hockey and they were very successful doing it 
And so Sutter, to me, he's a great fit for a team, you know, in the playoffs or looking to make a playoff run, much like a Willie Mitchell back in the day, different position, obviously. But, you know, Mitchell really shined as a playoff guy. You know, his big breakout, you know, across the NHL was that playoff series against the Canucks when he was with Minnesota. Mm-hmm. You know, he shut down Bertuzzi. Uh, and Nasland, and you know he was one of their top shutdown uh, D pairings. And to me, Sutter could be that player on a team looking to bolster up their third line. But unfortunately, with the cap not going up as much as a lot of teams did uh, or thought it was going to go up, it definitely has kind of uh, handcuffed a lot of teams. Mm-hmm. So Sutter might be hard to move. But I mean, I like the Russell deal. Four years again might be a little much, but I think that was a good deal. You know, just I, one more thing with Sutter as well. He's a modified no trade, mm-hmm. uh, so it's a list of fifteen teams he can't be traded to. So that's half the league right there. Yeah. So if you're looking at some sort of deal where you, you can move him and also retain some salary, or you know, it, it's it's a tough. It is a tough one to move, and we have one more year after this as well with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is definitely tough. Uh, the other thing that I don't think Benning got a lot of credit, enough credit for, I should say, was the expansion draft. Mm-hmm. He actually positioned the Canucks in a really great way where we weren't going to lose anything well, of real value. We didn't have a lot, really, once you sure. protect those players. I sure. mean, getting Lucas Spiza off the books there, that's you know that was a best-case scenario, really. Absolutely. And, you know, Spiza, I think, played okay for Vegas yeah. that first year. Yeah. But, you know, he's not a game-breaker. And I know there's reports or there's thoughts that, you know, we could have gotten one of the Ducks' better defensemen uh, in the Kessler deal instead of Spiza. But, you know... It is what it is. I still think he did good in the Kessler trade, considering Kessler gave him one team to trade him to. He, you know, he uh, got a pretty good haul. Spiza obviously wasn't the greatest uh, return, but you still got Nick Benino at third round pick and a first round pick for Kessler in a third. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's overall that's a, that was a pretty good trade. And then you know, a little bit later, even though maybe my all time favorite Canuck is losing Bieksa to the Ducks for for a second rounder, that's not a bad deal either. Unfortunately, well, it ended up that, being a great deal for the Canucks because they got his salary off the books. They didn't have to protect him for the expansion draft. Mm-hmm. And again, the Ducks because of that move lost Shea Theodore for nothing. Now, obviously, it would have been nice if the Canucks could have picked up Theodore instead of Benino. But you know, again, hindsight's twenty twenty. But the Ducks literally gave away Shea Theodore to keep Kevin Bieksa. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I remember that was a tough three days in my Canuck fandom. Lost Eddie Lack and Kevin Bieksa in the same week. I knew it had to happen, but that was that was just some tough times. So we got another one, two, three years of Benning. We're... Sounds like it's at least two. I would say maybe three. I do think this ownership group, if the Canucks don't make the playoffs, would pull the trigger. I think they just wanted to give him a little bit of support and a little bit of uh, clarity on his future and for him to not be desperate to make you know silly moves come trade deadline uh but i definitely think if this team doesn't make the playoffs i can't imagine uh francesco aquilini not pulling the trigger and moving in another direction you've heard this last year as well about you know the team wanting to add a president after the linden debacle but it also doesn't sound like a lot of guys want to come and work for Aquilini. You know, there was multiple reports that he had reached out to uh, Dean Lombardi on several occasions. He's obviously denied that. But I've heard a lot of people say that Lombardi doesn't want to work for Aquilini because he feels like he is too much of a meddling owner. Yeah, there's always been those uh, kind of concerns in the Vancouver market about ownership meddling. It's a favorite kind of scapegoat here. And, you know, I, whether it's true or not, I'm not sure. But, you know, I felt that... The, uh, the Vertanen pick as well, and the Erickson signing were not really in line with what Benning and the team were saying is the direction that they needed to go. Yeah. Uh, so it, it does have that that history with us. Well, regardless of anything else, it's going to be an entertaining year watching uh, how this unfolds, and uh, certainly is going to divide Twitter even further, I think. Oh, definitely. I mean, everyone's got an opinion on it. Everyone thinks that, you know... Benning's a bit of a, you know, a bit aloof and, you know, a bit of a, you know, I don't want to say bozo, but, you know, everyone thinks he's a bit of a, you know, uh, yeah, that he's not the most sharpest tool, you know, in the shed or, you know, the most bright guy in the room, but, you know, the guy's been in hockey his whole life. Kind of understands the game. Kind of looks like the dude from the Munsters as he well. Does. The, the, <laughs> the dad, I believe, from the Munsters, is it Dracula? Yeah, yeah. Also in uh, Gremlins. Yeah, he is in Gremlins too. That's right. <laughs> I think uh, I think I think that uh, also affects my judgment of him sometimes too. Well, 
Yep, it's uh, like to see what the details are, but I think both him and Green are expected to succeed this year. What do you think of this year with uh, the signings that were done during free agency? We talked about some of the past moves, but what about the current ones? What do you think about Miller coming? Well, Miller was via trade, but the Furland. Myers and Ben, what do you think of those ones? I mean, I love the Jordy Ben signing. I think that's a great signing. I think he's really going to help the bottom pairing. Uh, obviously, he could he could step up if there's injuries and play top four minutes if he's needed to or needed to. Myers, I mean, there was so much smoke about the Myers signing, and it was going to be a six year. Seven and a half million dollar contract. Some people thought it was going to be eight. And do you think that was planted? Well, I've heard some people can you know the conspiracy theorists on Canucks Twitter out there believe that the Canucks put out false information. So when they would sign him to the deal, they ended up signing him to that. It would, most of the fans would have, oh, that's not so bad, you know. I I like Myers. Obviously, he seemed to peak his first year. I mean, he won the Calder Trophy with Buffalo. He was a great player. Obviously, he played in Kelowna. He doesn't seem to be the same player. I know he's had some back issues in the past. I think he's definitely going to help our power play. Obviously, with him and Hughes as well. I mean, our power play should be, I'm hoping, a top 12 power play in the league. So that's, you know, kind of the top third, you know, power play in the league. At least I think so. Do you use them on different units? Um, I, I guess so. Like, to me, like, your shutdown pair, in my opinion, is going to be Edler Tanev, if they're healthy. But for the power play, though, do you use them on different power play units? Um... Probably, yes. Yeah. I probably Go would. four forwards? Yeah, that seems to be the trend for a lot of teams this year. Or, you know, of these past few years as you go four forwards. Um, I know some coaches have actually been experimenting with five forwards on yeah. the power play. Um, it's I fun still, to watch when the, they do that. I've seen Washington do that a couple times. Yeah, I agree. I still think, I still, and again, maybe it's just because of, you know, I'm a huge Sammy Sallow fan. But, I, you know, I love having a guy who can blast the puck from the point. Yeah. Myers can definitely do that. Um Again, I don't mind this signing as much as a lot of other people do. The term does have me a little bit worried, uh, but I do believe there is a caveat on there that they don't have to protect him in the nope, expansion draft. They don't. Uh, so, you know, if it doesn't work out, leave him, dangle him out there. Maybe Seattle will grab him. Well, and it also depends. If Seattle's got to get to the ceiling, or sorry, the floor of the, of the cap, then, you know, he's definitely a guy that they might take, and he does have some name recognition. I, I don't mind that... Oscar Fattenberg, I think, is a great low-risk, high-reward yeah. signing. And Furland, again, Furland, the only issue I have with him is his health. He's had some injuries. He's had some concussion problems these past couple of years. Um, but I think if the guy's healthy, he is definitely a guy that, you know, most teams are going to hate to play against every night. And that's what yeah. this current crop of Canucks haven't really had. I know we were sold that Brandon Sutter would be that guy that teams are going to hate to play against. I don't think he's really been that guy. We need, you know, we're missing that Ryan Kessler kind of guy who, like, teams just hated to play against. Burroughs. Roussel showed uh, points of that, of course, before the injury. Roussel was, on some nights, though, the only guy who seemed to have that. I agree. And I think, uh, I really like the Furland. I think the term is good. I think, uh, you know, he's a pretty serviceable guy. Just like uh, JT Miller. They can play on both sides. And Miller's also can play in the middle. Uh, but I really... Liked, I mean, the Roussel signing out of those bunch we had last year was, was the one I, that's, I think has worked out the best. I agree. Uh, Jordy Ben, love that. I think, you know, that's perfect. You know, local kid coming home. Fantenberg, mm -hmm. like you said, low risk. And the guy's got games under his belt. He's played in L.A. and uh, Calgary. And then, uh, yeah, Myers, it's, geez, it's, it's going to be a wait and see. I, I, I know five years isn't the end of the world. Six million isn't the end of the world. But if things go south... He's going to get crucified in this market. Yeah, well, and that's what happens, right? A lot of the times these guys, like Louis Erickson, he's a good player, but, you know, when he's making $6 million a year and he's currently your highest-paid Canuck, you know, obviously when Besser resigns, that'll be a totally different uh, story. But as of right now, he is the highest-paid Canuck. Maybe Myers' contract topped it. I'm not no, sure. No, they're, uh, uh, they're all the same. We have three guys at $6 million. Uh, okay. Erickson, Edler, and Myers. And, you know, that's another thing. We, have, we haven't talked about that. It was the Alex Edler extension. Because uh, it sounded for a while there that Edler was going to go bye-bye. Yeah. And, uh, again, they talked. And then it was reported it was a three-year deal. Then it was a one-year deal. And turned out to be a two-year deal. Edler as well. He's another guy we're not going to have to protect in the expansion draft. Mm -hmm. Like, there are these kind of, you know, chess moves Benning is making that he doesn't get enough credit for. And he is having... And one thing I have criticized this current management group uh, for is not having enough foresight. But they definitely seem to be positioning themselves... For these expansion drafts in a very good way where they're 
they might lose a young player who may or may not be an NHL contributor, but they're not going to lose anyone who's actually a significant, you know, uh, game changer to the team. Do you think teams put too much emphasis on the expansion draft? Do you think teams worry too much for two years about building their roster to save themselves for one player? I mean, you look at what happened with Florida and you look at what happened with Minnesota. Well, that's, you're, I don't think you're going to see that again this year. That was just stupid. No. I, mean, I think I think teams are going to say, you know what, if this is the guy you want, take him. Like they're not going to try to go out of their way to protect their guy and and make sure that Seattle doesn't take their, the guy they want to protect. They take them, they take them, they'll move on, they'll plug that hole somewhere else in the system, free agency, trade wise. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. But obviously, Florida was the team that I think really stubbed their toe on uh, on this whole situation. There's a couple of teams actually that you could really look at and be like, yikes. Florida and Minnesota are the the two that just come to mind right away. I mean, what what they did with some of those moves, especially Florida, like had Marcia So and Smith. Like what what are you doing? Like that's totally counterintuitive to what you're trying to do with the the expansion draft model. I, I don't know. It's I think that sometimes though teams get a little too carried away. At the end of the day you're gonna lose a player. You know, and I think it's more important obviously to make sure your younger assets are connect are, are protected. But if you lose a if you lose a vet you know, that's what free agencies for. You can go and go and plug that hole. So I think as long as the priority is on keeping the younger players, and obviously, you know, we're, we're setting ourselves up pretty well on that front. I'm not too worried about what, what happens with Seattle. Um, any final thoughts on Benning? Uh, no, not really. It's going to be an interesting year. There'll definitely be a lot for us and the rest of, you know, the Canucks fans out there to talk about. Um, I'm sure the Canucks are still, obviously, I think they're still going to try to make a move before camp. To free up a little bit more salary cap. Yeah, I, I don't know what they're going to do. I definitely think Schaller starts in the AHL, so that should give them an extra million dollars. But, you know, best is probably going to be between six and a half to maybe seven and a quarter, I think. I think it could go as high as seven and a half. Yeah, uh, I agree. Um, and they need, so they are going to need to kind of find some money here and there. And you get the Roussel on the LTIR as well. Yeah. That gives you a little bit more breathing room. Um, but, yeah, I think... Uh, think it's going to be a pretty interesting year regardless on the on the Benning front what besides we've got the uh the, the Besser RFA we got the Goldobin RFA besides those do you see any uh, kind of interesting storyline like is it what do you do with Markstrom moving forward do you, do you try and flip him do you try and extend him what do you kind of see is out of Tanev's another guy kind of in that boat too but what do you see is kind of the next priority besides these two RFAs that we have is it moving Sutter Erickson what do you see I mean, Markstrom's an interesting one. Obviously, going into the year, it's his final year. He's had a he had a really good year last year, and the year previous to that, he was starting to show signs that he can be a legitimate number one goalie. I think a lot of that depends on um, what happens with Demko this year. How many games Demko gets to play? Demko got hurt last year. If he can stay healthy, and you know, you can get Demko to thirty. 35 games this year and just see kind of what progress Demko is making will determine what the Canucks do with Markstrom uh, come ne- at the end of next year. Or even before the deadline. Or before the deadline. I, To me, I, I can't see them... De- I, I, it all depends, but I can't see them making a move like that unless Demko's, you know, usurped Markstrom as the number one goalie. I can't see them moving de- uh, Markstrom at the deadline. Well, the, the only situation I can see is that the Canucks are out of the playoff situation or they're kind of in the fray, that's a piece that you could get something for. And I think that would be an option that you'd have to explore because, you know, we talked about the expansion draft before. If Markstrom is still on this team in some capacity, that's another guy who more than likely will be left exposed with the, the Demko situation. Yeah, I agree. The only thing that I think about that is a lot of goalies just don't have the value that they used to. It's true. So you're not going to get a lot from Markstrom. And most of the teams that are going for like that strong playoff run, probably already have their goalie in place. Unless you're Bobrovsky. Florida sees some value there. Yes, that yes. That's pretty ridiculous. This isn't to say when we were slamming on the Panthers. I mean, they seem to be the only team we ever trade with for, for half a decade there, but uh, $10 million for a goalie, that's a, that's, a, that's a whole other episode right there. Florida Panthers recently announced that they'll be retiring Roberto Luongo's number one on March 7th against the Montreal Canadiens, which has led to a lot of online discussion here in Vancouver about whether or not the Canucks should do the same or whether the Canucks should do anything for Luongo going into this 50th 
anniversary year. Doug, what's your initial take on this? I definitely think, you know, the Canucks should plan some sort of, like, celebration of Luongo's tenure in Vancouver. I don't think he should have his number retired, in my opinion. If you look at Luongo's greatest achievements as a Canuck, his greatest achievement in Vancouver wasn't with the Canucks. It was with Canada in the 2010 Olympics, winning gold medal in Vancouver, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. But that's, Blur, blurs the lines a little bit, right? I agree. That wasn't like that was his greatest achievement as a Canuck, in my opinion. Or it, well, his tenure in Vancouver as a Canuck, I guess his greatest achievement was obviously getting us, you know, helping be part of the team to get us to a game seven. If he won, if we won the Stanley Cup in 2011, I definitely think yes, you, you know, he solidifies his name as, you know, to retire number one in the rafters, and he's one of the greatest of all time. He probably doesn't leave the Canucks as well. He's probably still in Vancouver to this day. But if you look at his overall statistics when he was with the Canucks, you know, they're they're not outstanding. I mean, sure, he's got most shutouts in a season by a Vancouver Canuck with nine, beating Dan Cloutier seven. He also has the all-time leader in shutouts with 38. But this is where it gets interesting for me, is that he's pretty much top two with everything in Canucks history with the guy who also wore number one and was one of my favorites because, again, he had a cool mask and he was a good goalie and he robbed the Flames in that overtime is Captain Kirk. And it's and, funny because Luongo was also the captain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's even more similarity there. Spooky. Uh, but, yeah, I think that, for me, that's where I kind of... I kind of have some problems with the idea of retiring's number. We got McLean up in the Ring of Honor already. Yep. And I don't know if you, you put in a guy who's played less games than uh, the guy up there. You know, he's, he's got, he's, he's right up there with a lot of what Captain Kirk has done. But, you know, he played less seasons as well. And uh, I, I think Captain Kirk's legacy in Vancouver is kind of just as great as uh, what Luongo did. He also got to a Game 7 of the Finals. He did. Question for you. What is your definitive Roberto Luongo game as a Canuck? Game as a Canuck? Yes. You know what? Uh, the first one that came to mind, you put me on the spot here, it wasn't a good one. Uh, it was going into uh, Toronto on a Hockey Night in Canada game and allowing three goals in the first period, mm. getting yanked, and Andrew Raycroft comes in, and the Canucks storm back and win 5-3, and Andrew Raycroft going into the corner and just like shaking his glove at these Canucks fans in the crowd. Was that when Sundin scored the... No, uh, it's a different one. I remember Burroughs had an empty netter that game. Okay. That was a different one. But, yeah, it was, like, the defining Canuck moment, I don't know. Like, uh, I mean, for me, it was the Dallas playoff game. He had 72 saves. Oh, the uh, quadruple overtime. Yes. I was at that game. That, to me, that was the big one. Was that also the one where he uh, had to... He didn't start one of the overtimes because uh, I think Danny Sabrin came out. Yeah, I don't know if it was that one. I, I can't remember. I'll never forget the look on uh, old Mike Gillis's face No, it was Nonis. Nonis, right. Dave Sorry. Nonis. Yeah, I can picture his, picture his face there. I get my GMs all crossed. But yeah, just him up in the press box looking down. Like, what, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, I mean, to me, that that as, as like a positive, like that to me is the most defining game that I can remember Luongo playing in a Canuck uniform. And it was, it was amazing. We won that series. Um... You know, he was unbelievable that game. Unbelievable. And he had some great games other than, you know, outside of that. And he has the most wins by a Canuck with 47 in a season, passing your guy, Kirk McLean, who, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, I love McLean as well. But even that playoff run that the Canucks had in 2011, is there any game you can think of throughout that entire run where Luongo made this unbelievable save and, you know, it's etched in your memory? Well, the playoff run is obviously it's Burroughs and BX, so those are the two that really... Come Kessler up. against Nashville as well. I thought. Yeah, he. he oh, that series was he. He dominated. Um, there was a he had a shutout in the finals. Longo did, if I remember. There was that game where uh, Rafi Torres scored really late, mm. if I remember. Game three or I believe game you're two. Right. No, it would have had to be game game two or five. I don't know. Again, it all kind of blurs together. I was at every game that year in the final in the playoffs except for one. And uh, well, you were there with me for game seven. Yeah, it was incredible, man. Uh, obviously. Didn't get the result we were looking for, but at the same time, it was an unbelievable experience. Uh, I know Luongo obviously was upset that they couldn't finish the job. Mm-hmm. One of the things that kind of, uh, again, it was weird, was was the whole captaincy thing. I, I thought that was that was strange. You know, I, I it never really made sense of why why they did that with it. I think Gillis was always one of those guys who tried to think outside of the box. He believed in sports psychology, and I think he wanted to kind of go in a different direction. And at that time, the Sedin 
really hadn't become the players they ended up becoming yet. So, you know, in his mind, this was Luongo's team, and they weren't ready for whatever reason to give the C to Henrik or Daniel, um, and they gave it to Luongo. It was a weird experiment. I don't think it necessarily was a success, successful experiment, but, yeah, I think it was just Gillis being Gillis trying to think outside the box. Fun stat on uh, McLean and Luongo. I don't know why I came across this, but Kirk McLean is the all-time assist leader uh, for Canucks goalies, and Roberto Luongo is second. It's 21 regular season assists for Captain Kirk and 10 for Lou. Wow. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a useless fact right there. Uh, if you Also, if you look at Luongo's stats in Florida, he dominates the Florida stats sheets. He has more than double the amount of games played of number two, which was their original goalie, John Van Beesbrook, who yep. he got in the expansion draft from the Rangers. Every category, again, he's more than double on the wins on John Van Beesbrook. 230 wins, and then John Van Beesbrook has 106. He's just everything in the Florida stats he dominates. And he had two stints with the team, obviously, as we know. He had five years and left for his eight in Vancouver and then came back for six more. So it's kind of a different situation there. I can't actually think. Is Has Florida actually retired a number? No, this is the first number they've ever retired. So um, Luongo is the first player to go up in the Raptors for Florida. And I definitely think he deserves to have his number retired in Florida. I think he means a lot to the community there. I agree. Um, he's, there's been rumors about him joining the broadcast team. I don't know if that's oh, confirmed Oh, I, I sure hope so. He's one of those guys that I want to see in life after playing hockey with him being involved in, in the media. I agree. And you can see, you know, the way he acts on Twitter, you know, with the Strombone one. He, you know, he's got a great sense of humor. And it's one of those things when he first came to Vancouver, you know, he was this kind of edgy, you know, uptight, you know, stiff, you know, kind of ego centric person and obviously when the Strombone one thing started to kind of get more and more steam and he started to be self-deprecating to himself and obviously the situation between him and Schneider the thing one thing two thing yeah. people got to really see this guy's personality it was, it was refreshing to see that you know hockey players you, you don't get that a lot it's no. all you know you know, get pucks in deep and finish our hits and, you know, hopefully come away with the W. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a whole lot of that in the interviews. It's refreshing to see a guy like Luongo really take let his personality shine through there. I, I definitely think, in my opinion at least, Luongo's kind of defining moment as a Canuck is going to be that he changed the narrative of Vancouver being a goalie graveyard. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, we were coming through some years of Cloutier and Potvin and all those guys. Not too, yeah, not too, not too far on the horizon. But uh, yeah, I think uh, you know it's the whole number one thing, and with it being with Kirk McLean as well. I don't think that Lou is worthy of a retirement. I think you're right; they could do something, but the Canucks have a way as well of just you know almost giving out retirements and rings of honor like they're just giving out candy on Halloween right it's uh, we're not at the quite the Leafs yet level yet oh, but I know what you mean it's Saturday night on Hockey Night <laughs> in Canada we're honoring the Blue Liners from the 1982 Toronto Maple Leafs <laughs> um yeah it's an interesting debate uh I, I personally don't think he's done enough to have his number retired I also I mean I definitely think Bray Deserves it. I oh, think the Sedins, who are going to be up there this year, deserve it. Yeah. Um, Linden absolutely deserves it. Naslin is another guy. To me, he's kind of like a Luongo. I get reasons for and I get reasons against. Steamer, he was the first kind of like genuine Canuck. I wouldn't retire the guy's number personally. Same. A little bit before my era, though, so I understand how he had a big impact on this team, and I know Linden credited him you know, for helping him kind of adjust to the league as a young 18-year-old kid. Um, but, yeah, like, I just, you know, you're going to start to retire all these players' numbers. You've never won a cup yet. Yeah. It, it does, it's not a good look. And then what happens when you finally do, you know, hit the summit and become Stanley Cup champions you're going to retire all those guys' numbers as well? <laughs> well, geez, I probably would. But yeah, Naslin, uh, the thing with Naslin is he's third on the Canucks all-time scoring. Yep. He played 11 seasons with the Canucks as well. It's got a pretty good stat record there. If I remember, he won a Pearson as well. He did. They never got past the second round, though, yeah. unfortunately. It's true. it's true, but I think, I think Naslin is worthy enough uh, to do that. Steamer, I mean, he's fifth uh, on the all-time list. The Canucks will have retired their top five all-time scores, essentially, yeah. when, when all, is, all is said and done. 
whether Smeal deserves it, you know, again, that was a bit before my time, but I think it was just kind of getting to a point where it's like, dude, we got it. We got to get something up in the Raptors here. Yeah. Um, so final vote. That's a, that's a no for the retirement. I have to say no. I definitely want to honor him in some way. You know, maybe next time Florida comes and he's in the broadcast booth covering the Florida game, there's a little video montage or, you know, you get him on the ice and you get some cheesy, goofy painting that, you know, a local artist did or, you know, like a caricature. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be great of him, like on a bike with a giant head or something <laughs> like that. Riding the seawall. Yeah, maybe we'll get one of the artists in Stanley Park to draw it for him. There we go. I, I know a few artists myself. One last thing on, uh, you know, I, I don't want to keep coming back to Kirk McLean, but, you know, I got an autographed picture of him hanging up in my hallway there. I'm a big fan of the guy. Uh, my buddy Brooks, who's one of the brewers over at Parkside there, he recently played with him at uh, some tournament as well, says he's a good guy. But I would like to say that. The uh, Kirk McLean trade, when we got him, uh, when we traded Patrick Sundstrom to New Jersey and we brought in Kirk McLean and Greg Adams, one of the best trades we ever made. I agree. I agree. That and obviously getting Mameso and Cortnell from St. Louis for Garth Butcher and I forget who else. Uh, There's a lot of trades in that St. Louis, the whole Peter Nedved thing. We'll do that one another time. Sure. Uh, that, uh, the whole, the whole buildup of all the trades with the Blues, that era's Florida Panthers. Lou, we love you, but can't retire your number here in Van City. Unfortunately not. We'd like to take the opportunity to discuss one of uh, Canuck, the Canucks prospects in the system, and today we've chosen to talk about, I think, probably the most intriguing player going into training camp this year is Ole Ulevi. He's certainly one of them, and I think a lot of Vancouver fans forget he's even a prospect. Yeah, I mean, you look at guys that were drafted after him. He was the first defenseman taken in the 2015-16 draft, or 2016 draft, I guess. Um, you know, Sergachev is uh, playing regular minutes in the NHL. Jacob Chikorin is playing regular minutes in the NHL when he's not injured. Obviously, Charlie McAvoy. And Yulevi obviously still hasn't played an NHL game yet. There's some reasons to that. Obviously, he's had some injuries. Yulevi's actually the only player in the top 17 drafted that year that hasn't played an NHL game. That's a crazy statistic. I didn't realize that. Um, but I do think there's still a ton of talent there. And I definitely don't think this guy's a bust just yet. Are you going to get the a top five player, the best defenseman in that draft? Probably not. But I definitely think this guy can be a top four NHL uh, defenseman for the Vancouver Canucks moving forward. And even going back to like the year he was drafted, you know, he was number five on North American skaters and uh, NHL Central Scouting's list of North American ska- skaters. There was only one defenseman ranked ahead of him, and that was Jacob Chikrin. Who ended up falling to the middle of the first round? I remember, I remember that Chikrin fall. That was that was something. That... I think the thing with Chikrin, a lot of people were worried about was he had a bit of a history with injuries. But his first year, that year he was drafted, he won the gold medal with Finland at the World Juniors. He was uh, only beat out by Zach Wierenski in points, or sorry, he was actually tied with Zach Wierenski in points. Wierenski had two goals, seven assists. Yulevi finished the tournament with nine assists. Wierenski did win defenseman of the tournament, but still, he was on the all-team, the all-pro team or the first team of that tournament. In the Ontario uh, playoffs that year, when they won the Memorial Cup, or sorry, not the Memorial, is it the Memorial Cup? Yeah. Yeah, when they won the Memorial Cup, and again, don't get me wrong, it was a stacked Knights team. Yeah, they had that, uh, what was it, Dvorak and Marner. And And Kachuk. uh, And Kachuk line, yeah. So for the playoffs, you know, outside of the top three of Marner, Kachuk, and Dvorak, Yulevi was their fourth highest scoring player. He had three goals, 11 assists, 14 points in the 18 playoff games that London played that year. He was only one point behind the playoff lead um, of, I believe it was, yeah, Rasmus Anderson. Uh, who finished with two goals, 13 assists, 15 points in 15 games. And he was tied with Travis Dermott for the exact same stat line. Dermott played eight, or sorry, Dermott played five less games. But, you know, going into that draft, he was, in a lot of people's mind, the best defenseman heading into the draft. I know the love affair of big, strong, powerful defensemen like a Sergachev. There was a lot of guys who had Sergachev maybe ahead of Yulevi, but most pundits had Yulevi as one of the top uh, picks there. And Sergeyev, it's always the Russian factor there too. It's, yes, uh, that that makes some teams. And until this year, uh, I you know the Canucks just haven't really done the gamble on the, the Russians. One thing that's interesting when you look at Yulevi's stats, uh, his uh, second year going back to London, 
is that he had the same amount of points without that top line. And, and granted, they had some good players there. Uh, but with that, you take out 300-point players, where you're quarterbacking the power play, you would expect a point dip. And he put, played one more game and had the same amount of points. I know there's some people who do feel like that he it was a lateral kind of production, like he didn't go elevate his game to the next level. You know, that second year in London, you're expected, now that you lose those three top players, to take more of a leadership role, up your game to the next level. It looked like it was kind of more of a, you know, a, not really a regression, but he didn't actually take that next step. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, that's when so, some people started to come down on Yulevi. Obviously, Kachuk being drafted with the sixth overall pick and having almost immediate success in Calgary. Um, so you're, he's always going to be tied to that pick, unfortunately. And then, obviously, the whole rule, because Yulevi was also one of the youngest players drafted in the 2016 draft. Mm-hmm. He was 17, you know, his... I don't know exactly how it works with the draft age, but you know he was one of the younger players, so he had to do three years of junior. Well, and he went to that's why he went over to Finland uh, in his yes. third year, and he uh, and even there in the, you know in a men's league, he averaged half a point a game. Yeah, I mean, I think he definitely kind of started out of the gate a little bit slow. He didn't, you know, it took him a while to kind of get adjusted, but once he did get adjusted, you know, he did you know, start piling up the points, and he had a decent playoff run with them as well. He played eleven games, had seven points. For uh, TPS Turku, I uh, I caught a few of his games when he came over to Utica, uh, just just streaming a few different ones, and he looked like uh, a different player from kind of what I'd seen highlight wise from when he did start in Turku that that 2017-2018 season, and he was a force. He had a great start, and I think we forget a lot about that and how the Canucks decided, hey, we got to pull the trigger and make the move, get this guy the surgery, just shut him down, get him ready for next year. But he was playing quite well with the Comets. Absolutely. I mean, he had 13 points in 18 games, you know, and the Comets weren't a great team. I, I know the plus-minus statistic is... Plus-minus is a relative stat. You, exactly. know, I'm not, you know I'm not a fan of really a plus-minus. No, he was a minus 12 as well. But again, I think that statistic's not really equitable in today's NHL as far as determining how well a player is playing. Um, but yeah, he was, you know just under, you know, a point per game, essentially. And he was looking like, you know, he was definitely going to be getting called up to the Canucks, you know, once injuries would have hit. Unfortunately, he went down with a knee injury. And I think that's kind of the big concern with him now. It's just like he has had a few injuries kind of pile up over the years. And, you know, if he can stay healthy, I I definitely think he'll be, you know, in the Canucks lineup at some point this year. I don't think he's going to make the team out of training camp. But I definitely think he'll be a guy that will be playing at least, you know, 20 to 30 games this year by the end of the season. Well, you look at left-hand Ds that'll start with the Canucks this year. There's Edler, there's Ben, and there's Hughes. And, you know, I have a feeling they're probably going to carry eight defensemen. That's, you know, it makes sense right now to think that it'll be Fentonberg and Viega to start the season. Yeah. However, both those guys do have to clear waivers to, to get back down to Utica should something happen. So... It, I think it makes it a bit tough on the to, to get, at least certainly on the right side. But the thing with Yolevi is he's a left-side guy. But who does come up first then? Is it Ole Yolevi? Is it Josh Tevez? Is it Ashton Sautner? And Sautner is also not uh, waiver-protected, so he'd be another guy that they would have to have clear waivers. But both Tevez and Yolevi are, which, again, that that's a big help when you got a few defensemen now who have to clear waivers to go down. Yeah, I, I definitely think that Yolevi will be a guy that they're going to want to get him NHL games. I think if he's playing well and he's doing, you know, what the coaches are asking him in Utica, because obviously, you know, just because I know there's a lot of people who, you know, say, well, Benning hasn't been to Utica in two years. I guarantee he's talking to the coaching and the management group down there almost probably, if not on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. And so they obviously report how the players are progressing, and I'm sure there's going to be a conversation. And quite often, we've seen it in the past couple of years, when they call a guy up who isn't expected to be the first call-up, it's because that player's been playing really, really well, and the coaching staff has been, you know, glowing about their production and how well they've been, you know, playing, and they deserve the call-up. I definitely think you'll levy. You know, if he if everything goes right, he will be the first call-up. I think the Canucks are going to want him to be the first call-up as well because he's a guy who I think that this management group definitely still sees as a legitimate, you know, player, you know, a productive player for this core moving forward. Well, he's an important piece. I mean, if you look at the the guys that we didn't take in that draft, that, that could be a big miss for all the home runs in the draft we've had. 
you know, first couple of Benning ones were, were a little bit rougher there if, if all of a sudden Ole Olevi doesn't work out at all. Like, he's he needs to play some NHL games this year. This fan base needs it as well. I really think he's best, though, after, you know, not playing since December, I think it was, uh, to go back and start in Utica and really get his legs there again before jumping right into the big leagues. But, like you said, like we've said a couple times, there's, there's going to be injuries. And that left side... I think they're going to start with only three left-side defensemen. I just just have a feeling about that, and I think that's, again, partially because of who is waiver-exempt, but also just who has the more NHL experience. I mean, it's basically it's Biega and Fantenbergs to lose. I also think the Canucks are going to want Ulevi playing in all situations, and if he goes down to Utica, he'll be on the power play unit, he'll be on the penalty-killing unit, he'll probably be a top-pairing defenseman down there. And, you know, he pretty much missed an entire year last year, right? I mean, he played less than 20 games. So I think they want him to get, you know, more game ready and, you know, game shape and get, you know, the pace of the game back. And once that happens, uh, you know, we'll get to finally see how he's tr- uh, how he's trending. And I definitely think he'll be one of the first call-ups if there is an injury on the back end. Um, here's an interesting thought. I know there's been some rumors out there. And, again, I like Ulevi, but would he be a guy you'd package – with say a Louis Erickson for a team to take his contract. I, I hope not. I hope not. I would. Uh, so you would, wouldn't do that. No, no, I wouldn't. Uh, I, I think if that's the cost of, of doing that, it's it's too high. I think. I agree. I not Yolevi. You know, it could be something else, but he, that one could come back and bite you. Well, for a guy who hasn't even played an NHL game yet, and I know people are like, well, you know, it's been almost four years since this guy, you know, was drafted, and he still hasn't played an NHL game. But I agree. I, I, I definitely think that, you know, you, you, you need to be sure on him before you, you make a move like that. Um, there's, but, also, there's also something to be said for his, uh, just the amount of games he, teams he's played for over the last couple of years. He played on three different teams, three different, four different Finnish teams. Uh, no, five different Finnish teams over a two-year period. And he was also, that's not even counting his TPS as well there. So from like 2016... To 2019, up to this point in time, he's already been on eight different teams, and that's tough to get a rhythm going as a player. I agree. I agree. Um, I'm still really excited for him. I mean, obviously, if I was honest, I would rather have Charlie McAvoy in the lineup right now. Or Sergachev. Yeah, for me, it'd be McAvoy or Kerchuk. Sergachev. I'm I'm not as high on Sergachev as a lot of other player. Uh, a lot of other people are. Uh, I still think Yulevi is going to be a top four defenseman for this team moving forward. I definitely think he's going to be a guy that will be a contributing member to this team. Um, and he's a guy that I think a lot of Canucks fans have been sleeping on. And I get it. I, I understand why. Mm-hmm. Well, it'll be interesting to see how he does in camp. I think that's that's the thing that is really going to dictate how the rest of this season goes. I really hope... I'm sure every Canucks fan hopes that he comes out, has a strong camp, makes a case to make the team, is one of the final cuts, goes down to Utica, and is the first guy to, to get the call to fly west. I agree. Uh, I, I hope he... Again, I would love to see him make the team over, like, a Fattenberg. But, I mean, if you look at the depth chart right now, you know, you're going to have Ben playing, obviously, right? Stetcher. Mm-hmm. You've got Hughes. You've got Edler, Tanev, and Myers. Your, your six is set. I think your, I your top six is set right now, and like I, like I said, I think they're going to carry the two vets to start the year. I mean, but who knows? You know, you they they could not. Uh, I'd like to see Olevi battle for that spot, but it's easier to manage sending guys like Tevez, Rafferty, Olevi down to the minors. It's easier to manage your roster and your assets than to kind of t- to start the season and to see what you have. Well, I also think it's better for Yulevi's development to be playing games and to be playing in all situations as opposed to you know being the odd man out mm-hmm. starting the season. But who knows? I mean, there could be an injury in training camp. We could you know, and he could make the jump. Um, but there's a lot of guys on this you know on this young defensive core that you know I'm interested to see how Jet Wu looks going into training camp. You know what I mean? I don't think he's going to make the team whatsoever, but he's a guy that I think can really hopefully light a fire under someone like Ulevi, who's like, hey, this guy, you know, is Two about years to, younger. Exactly, he's about to usurp me on the depth chart of this of the prospects in this organization. I need to you know light a fire under my ass. And that's why I like uh, bringing in a couple of these NCAA kids as well, is it yeah. does. Create that, and it also gives him more help down in Utica. Like you know, that minus twelve, whatever. Like I'm, I, I don't like the plus minus, but that Utica team last year, 
was depleted when the Canucks were depleted. And this yep. is something that's happened the last couple of years. And it's hard to build that culture and build that team and surround Yulevi with good players when everyone's getting called up. Yeah. So I think I would much rather have him playing big minutes in Utica than sitting in the press box or getting eight minutes on a third pairing. I think it would be much better for him to be down there with the team and be that number one guy because he should be the number one blue liner if he's starting in Utica. I agree. And every situation defenseman, and let's see what he's got. He's still only 21. Yep. And he's, he's, a, he's a fresh 21, too. He And, you know, the Sammy Salo comparables are... You know, and the the ties between those two. But Sammy Salah wasn't even signed in the NHL yet when he was 21. Well, and the other thing, too, people, and again, I know it's immediate. You look at Sergeyev, you look at Chikrin, you look at McAvoy. Defensemen take longer to develop. They take longer to make a, an impact as regular NHL players. I know the league is trending towards younger, quicker, faster players. You're seeing all these RFAs this year. You got, like, an unbelievable RFA class. And that's because players are, you know, making more of an impact at a younger age. But the general consensus is defensemen take longer. They just do. You look at all the big RFAs that are out there right now, none of them are defensemen that I can think of, except for McAvoy. He's mm-hmm. the only guy. Um, and so that's the other reason why I'm, I'm, I want to be more patient with you, Levy, before, you know, closing the book and saying he's a bust and all that stuff. I, I definitely think, you know, you give this guy a couple more years to see where he is. And again, I don't think he's going to be a Norris Trophy guy. I, I don't. But I think he's going to be one of those guys who does the small things well. He's a solid defensive guy. He's not a shut-down, physical, imposing guy. But, you know, he's great at cutting off angles. He's got a good stick, you know what I mean? And, you know, he does have a tendency to, you know, put up points on the power play. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's got a great uh, outlook pass. Which is what you need. You need that transitional defenseman. He's, he's kind of in that cusp of that new breed of defenseman that you're seeing now. And I think, again, the, the Canucks' defensive depth this year is the best that I can remember it for a long time. You know, we didn't even... You're looking further down, there's guys like Guillaume Breezebois still in there, too, That you, and Jalen Chatfield, who've been in the system for a couple of years. But yeah. all of a sudden now, when, you know, you get these injuries that, that happen, there's other guys that can come up. And it's the same with the forward court, too. I think the team has realized that we just can't be... You know, bringing in guys like Michael DiPietro on an emergency basis to no. plug holes. And I think you're you're seeing that with some of these moves that they've done. And I think they've done a, a very good job with that. But again, there's, you know, as here we are in August and we're excited about it. But the real test is going to come in a few weeks once training camp opens. It'll be a very exciting time. I look forward to it. And I look forward to seeing, uh, you know, some of the preseason games. And I'm hoping he gets at least, you know, one or two games. So we're in agreement. Olio Levy starting in uh, Utica would be best? Absolutely. All right, let's have a cheers to that. Cheers. And for our final segment, we're going to be doing uh, the free pour open floor. Uh, so what are you pouring for us today, Pete? Uh, well, it's our first episode, so we got to go with a good one today. Uh, I've cracked and opened uh, the Lagavellen 16 today. Most of you guys are familiar with Lagavellen, I'm sure. Uh, single malt, scotch. Most of mine are going to be scotch that I provide here, but hey man, this is a nice one. Nice and peaty, nice and smoky. Peaty and smoky, just like me. Nice. And so this segment's pretty much just going to be what, what we said, free pour, open floor. We're just going to put out a topic. It's not really going to be much except for maybe a soliloquy, and we might ask the listeners to give their opinion on it, and that's about it. So, Pete... I'll let you start. Well, first, man, we gotta we gotta have a cheers here. We, we've made it through this first episode and only stumbled about eighteen thousand times. So, uh, congratulations to us. Congratulations, cheers. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to talk about the dog days of summer. That uh, really grinds my gears right now. You know, <laughs> I just I miss sports. As we're doing this, I'm getting notifications from the Seahawks about the preseason game. I don't care. I want real NFL. I miss NFL so bad. At least the Premier League is back and at least Arsenal is 2-0 right now. That helps a lot, although 4.30 starts really doesn't help a lot. But Jesus, man, like I keep having to watch CFL highlights and baseball highlights. What was that brawl, though, the, the other day? Unless it's a brawl, that it's it's not that exciting. I, I believe it was between the Cincinnati Reds and the Pittsburgh yeah, Pirates. Like, unless something like that, but like Come on here, like this is just killing me. It's just the dead times of hockey right now. I need my sports back. Doug, what do you got? I agree. For me, I'm gonna throw a question out to all the listeners. 
Do you have a Canucks Mandela effect? And let me quickly describe or say what a Mandela effect is. The Mandela effect essentially is you believe something to be true or you remember something a certain way, but in fact it's different. One of the big ones was the Berenstein Bears, but apparently it's the Berenstein Bears. Yeah. Another one was Curious George. Did he have a tail? Didn't he have a tail? So trying to tie this into the Canucks, my Canucks Mandela effect, and again, maybe I'm crazy and no one else has this, is I swear, I swear Yurke Lume has already been inducted into the Ring of Honor. I have a vision, like I can literally see the pin, the honorary pins they hand out prior to the games to all the fans that attend the games of Yurke Lume's face and the big 21 in the background. I swear that happened. I would love to hear from the listeners out there if they have any Mandela effects related to the Canucks. That sounds like a vivid dream. It's something. Well, that about wraps up episode one of the Canucks Speakeasy. Thanks for tuning in, and we would appreciate any feedback, thoughts, questions. You can reach us on Twitter. Mine is at Pete underscore Gas. And mine is at Doug Venn. You know, we're new, we're trying, we're not perfect, but we are just two big Canucks fans. We have a lot to say, and hopefully you guys enjoyed listening to it. Appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. Have a good week, everyone.